Thanks for tuning in to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on this show, you'll hear hunting tactics, stories, and strategies from hunters across the South. Our aim is to sharpen our skills as hunters and outdoorsmen, become more efficient and effective in pursuit of our craft, and even have a little fun while we're at it. And of course, no matter the pursuit, we focus on doing things the Southern way. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Southern Way Hunting Podcast, and I am privileged today to have Mr. Lindsey Thomas Jr. from the National Deer Association on the line with me. Sir, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Josh. It's an honor to be with you. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm so glad you could carve out some time for this. So you are the Chief Communications Officer for the NDA, uh, and I will probably mess up and call it the Quality Deer Management Association at some point during this podcast. But the National Deer Association, you are the chief communications officer. What does that mean? So I handle all the uh, uh, educational outreach communications that we do. That used to be a magazine, uh, but we are now fully digital. So it's our website, it's email communications, it's social media, it's video. Uh, When you see material coming out from the National Deer Association, um, that's coming or uh, educational material in, in a communications form that's coming from my communications team. Got so, it. uh, yeah. And, and I, you know, you, you can't be blamed for thinking of us as QDMA. We've been around 35 years and for, uh, 32 of those, you know, we were QDMA, uh, but in 2020 became the national deer association when we merged with the deer Alliance. Right. So, um, I've been here 20 years um, with this organization. And, and like I said, when I started here, it was to produce the magazine and we didn't have a digital footprint at all. And of course times have changed and now we are a fully digital outfit in, in our communications. Right. So. Right. So I feel like when, when, when I get guys like you on, if I don't ask you this question, I get people writing in saying you should have asked him this. How did you get into where you are? Because I think a lot of people look at your job and others who work for the National Deer Association or, you know, NWTF or something like that. They look at these guys and they're like, that's the job I want. I want to wake up every morning with purpose and direction, you know. So how did you get to working for uh, what was QDMA? So, you know, I grew up hunting, but I also grew up enjoying reading and writing. I had a sense that I wanted to do to be an outdoor writer, but wasn't really sure how you go about doing that. Um, I got a journalism degree from the University of Georgia and then was very fortunate to land a job with Georgia Outdoor News as an editor. Uh, They were looking for someone with a journalism degree. Um, So I worked for them for nine years. And then uh, along that time, QDMA was looking for a new publications director. And again, that journalism degree came in handy because I had the writing and communication experience um, and editing. So that's how that worked. Um, you know, and I would say that anybody wants to break into the hunting industry, you know, think about not just that you love hunting in the outdoors, but what aspect of it do you want to do? Do you want to write? Do you want to do videography? Uh, do you want to do podcasting? Then, you know, get some training and focus on uh, the communication side of that in practice, right? Even if you want to be in videography or podcasting, do some writing because writing is basic communication. And when you learn how to write well and communicate clearly through the written word, it comes out in when you speak and when you film things and when you do a podcast interview, uh, that's just basic communication skills. So if you want to be in this area of hunting, uh, practice those things, you know, from the start and, right. um, and yeah, uh, get some training and, and the, the experience will come. Yeah. That's really good advice. That one of the things that I always tell guys, we're like, okay, how do I get to doing what you're doing? It's like these days, very few people make it, you know, as freelance or something like that in the outdoor space that are one dimensional. You've got to have your hands in a lot. You've got to be able to do some writing, probably some podcasting, definitely some video, definitely have a handle on social media. You got to have yep. your hands in a little bit of all of it. But then I follow that up very quickly with, if you can learn to edit video, you will never go without a job. <laughs> because there, there are so many people out there right now. It seems like video editors, um, you know, there's a lot of job security in that. Especially if you know how to put together some really good uh, social media 
sizzle reels or things like that. That's what uh, seems what people are going for. So uh, yeah, all of it, everything you just said, all of it is telling a story well and effectively and in a compelling way. And so, you know, it starts with writing, practice that, I, you know, uh, we get articles in from folks who say, I'd like to write for y'all. And uh, I say, well, send me some, send me something and they'll send me an article. And it's clear they just haven't done enough writing. They, they don't understand how to put together a compelling story. And that goes into video editing. It goes into doing a, an effective social media post and planning all of these things. So, but it comes from practice. You, you know, it, it, the more you write, the better you get at it. And the more, the better you'll be in all of these things. So um, yeah, work on it, do some writing and do some practicing of all these things. Yeah, absolutely. So you said you are handling a lot of, you know, the, your team is doing a lot of the uh, education stuff that comes out. Are you, are you guys involved with the uh, Deer Steward course as well? So that is Kip and his team in the conservation section. They okay. put on the Deer Steward courses, but, you know, there's some overlap. We all work together. We're on a, on the same team. Kip and his folks, you know, write for us. We got uh, – this year we had 12 different members of the NDA team who wrote articles for our website. So um, there's a lot of crossover um, right. in, in, in those areas. We all kind of support each other. But in general, my team, you know, runs and manages the website, um, handles the weekly e-newsletter that comes out to all of our members, uh, drives the social media, and handles video production from, in most cases. Right, right. So our, our big topic today is going to be the rut in the South, right? The timing of the deer rut, what influences that timing? But I want to talk about a couple of things to kind of tee that up. And the first one is this. I want to hear about your love for hunting. Like what, what inspired you? How did you get to the point where you wanted to make whitetails your life? Like what is it about them? What is it about your upbringing that brought you to that point? Well, I, I just grew up in the outdoors. I grew up on a farm. My dad was a farmer. I was outdoors all the time, you know, with a BB gun and, um, Dad took me hunting, took my brother and my sister hunting with him as well, took us fishing. We just did it all the time. And and I was very fortunate. Not everybody who hunts is fortunate to have come up that way. And, and there's lots of people that didn't grow up that way who don't hunt, who, you know, have an interest in learning. But it was just natural for me. So I just uh, – and for whatever reason, deer were the thing that fascinated me most. People get into duck hunting. And, uh, of course, I love to turkey hunt too. And I bass fish and I do all of this. But – Deer are just, for whatever reason, uh, I'm just, that's my thing. And that's what I love to do. And, and I think, too, that having grown up on a farm, we, uh, dad early on taught me how to plant trees for wildlife. He would plant crab apples and persimmons and other oak trees and things to enhance the habitat for deer. And that part was very compelling to me, too. Not just being a consumer of deer, but being a manager of deer in their habitat uh, early on was something that we did. So, and early on, Dad was interested in learning about the early ideas coming around about quality deer management, that through our trigger choices and our harvest choices of which deer we take, we can shape the population, make it healthier, and shape the hunting experiences that we have down the road. So, uh, all of these things just appealed to me, the science of making deer better through hunting them while enjoying, you know, all of the, the perks of being a hunter, the, being in the outdoors, being a part of nature and experiencing the, the food cycle, being, you know, a predator out there and part of the food cycle. Um, yeah, it's just the whole package for me. But again, because I also enjoy the, the management part of it, that's been the nice thing about being a team member here at NDA because, we are a science-based organization and our mission is teaching hunters about these aspects of hunting and deer management. Right. Right. So let, let's talk about your, uh, the ground that you hunt right now. One of the things that I've enjoyed is keeping up with, uh, is it Grace Acres? Is that what? That's right. Okay. Grace so Acres. Keeping up with your actions. I mean, watching you, you know, fish in small streams, uh, over the summer and uh, all the way into enjoying it for, you know, deer season, but then looking at your burn plan the other day that you posted on Instagram, what you guys are going to be doing, just love keeping up with everything that you guys have going on there. So is that the family land that you grew up hunting or is that a new parcel that you guys have acquired? What's that look like? No, that's our family land. Um, my dad's uncle was named Lindsey Grace and that was his farm. He's the one wow. that introduced my dad to hunting and he left that farm to my dad. And so it's named after him. And of course, that's where the name Lindsey came from. I'm, I'm Lindsey Jr. So um, 
that's the family land that we've had for a long time. And, and we, you know, it was a farm when dad was farming it, but it is now a tree farm. We grow longleaf pine. Uh, we are trying to restore longleaf pine habitat. And the nice thing about that, as you probably know, is longleaf pine is the native pine of the South uh, that has now been largely wiped out. And it is the most fire tolerant of the pine species. So when you grow longleaf, you can burn it earlier, burn it more regularly. And fire enables you to maintain maximum quality deer and, and turkey habitat. So it just goes hand in hand with a wildlife management plan. That's, and, but also a timber management. You know, to own land, you got to have income. And uh, most of us, you know, that, that own land need timber income. So longleaf pine is sort of a great combination of uh, a wildlife tree and a timber tree at the same time. And you can do both. You can manage that tree for timber income so you can afford to own the land and pay for, you know, the management things you want to do for wildlife, but at the same time, use it for optimal wildlife habitat. So that's, that's the way, what, that's what we farm now. We farm trees. Right. And uh, this is kind of a little side topic here, but just how early can you burn those, those pines? I think people are often surprised at just how early you can burn longleaf. Oh yeah. They'll survive fire at, at even one to two years, right. but generally two years and beyond is, is, is when you would want to burn them. But I have seen very young longleaf pine seedlings in, in the grass stage, just a little, you know, ball of needles on the ground, get burned over, be completely black and come back with green needles shortly after the fire is, is over. So, uh, yeah, they yeah. can take it very young. You know, two years would kill a loblolly pine seedling and, and any other pine as well. Right, right. Yeah, so don't be afraid to burn, guys. All that, all that to say, bring it back around. Don't, don't let it scare you off. So, uh, well, let's talk about your season so far. Uh, when are you seeing rutting activity down there where you are? So at Grace Acres, our rut is late October to the first week of November. So Halloween is a great time. And, and okay. coastal Georgia into South Georgia and even northern Florida, that late October uh, rut is traditional. That's kind of, you know, where it's been for a long time. Right. Okay. So when it comes to rut timing, obviously the South is very strange. You get north up into Tennessee, Kentucky, you know, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, all of those places. You could pretty much bank on that last week of October. A lot of people call it scrape week. You know, that's when you're catching bucks, checking scrapes and right there in the evenings or, you know, potentially in the morning as well. Uh, then obviously the first two weeks of November, that's go time for the rut. That's what we think about. But then you come down here to the south and you've got rutting bucks in August in South Florida. You've got rutting bucks in September in parts of southwest Louisiana. You've got October rutting going on in spots of Alabama, Georgia, Florida. You've got a November rut in places, December rut in places, even January, February, and we've watched a buck chase a doe in turkey season. So what in the world is going on with the South? <laughs> well, it's a couple things. First off, let's remember this about the rut. And I think every hunter, most don't realize this, but every hunter needs to realize this, that the whole point of rut timing, the whole point in any location of the time that breeding occurs is to put fawns on the dirt the next year at the best time for their survival. When forage is at high quality for the doe producing high quality milk and good forage is available for the fawn to wean onto so that it achieves a large enough body size by the time winter comes around again that it's going to survive that. So fawn drop, that is the whole point of when the rut occurs. It's not about, you know, the buck and the doe or anything about cold weather or fall. The whole point of rut timing is optimal timing of the fawn drop. And so various factors affect that. In the north, it's all about winter climate because a fawn that's born too early before the spring green up is going to die because it's still too cold and there's not adequate forage for the doe or the fawn. A, a fawn that's born too late in the north is missing that peak of spring green up and forage production, and they're not going to be big enough by the time winter comes around again to survive winter weather. So there's a very narrow window in most of the middle and northern part of the country uh, in November when it has to happen uh, or else that winter factor plays a role. Now, as you come south, winter is no longer the extreme factor like that. 
And so the window can be earlier and it can be wider. And as you get down into Central and even South America, you know, there are whitetails all the way down Mexico and down into Central America. As you get down in close to the equator, whitetails breed year round simply because they can. It doesn't matter when a fawn hits the dirt. There's forage all year long. There's not the seasonality that we have as you get further north. So just the underlying factor is it's about fawn drop. So traditionally, like in coastal Georgia, as you come south, it gets earlier. It gets into October because our spring is earlier in South Georgia. Um, And then again, as you get down into Florida, it's a little earlier in October. Now, there are some other areas where there were traditionally different climatic factors. You get into the Everglades of Florida. In the Everglades, there's a traditional summer flood season. Fawns have got to be big enough by the time that gets around to survive that. You don't want to be dropping fawns in water, right? And so in the Everglades, it's very early. Those deer are running in July and August because they've got to get fawns on the ground before summer flood. In the Mississippi Delta, there's a spring flood season. And again, you don't want to be dropping fawns in water. And so there's been a later rut there traditionally in parts of the Mississippi Delta to make sure fawns don't come so early that they're dropped during spring, the flood season for the Mississippi River. Now, so you've got those types of factors underlying the traditional rut. But then you come along to the 1900s when we were restoring deer to their, their ranges. And we went and took deer from different parts of the country and other states and moved them around, moved them around within states. And that uh, sort of did play havoc with the trigger for the timing, which is day, to day, it's day length. Uh, day length is what triggers a doe to go into estrus in a certain location. And so what they were doing was we were moving deer around with a certain built-in genetic rut timing, estrus timing, based on day length. Now they may be in a different latitude where we've moved them. So that day length trigger is now on a different day in the calendar, and it messed with rut timing. And that's where we got some of these weird areas. For example, the Georgia-Alabama line, where where you are in Villarica, it's a November rut, and you can drive across the Alabama line where it goes to January. Yep. Um, very quickly. Yes, very, very quickly. quickly. And within, you know, 30 miles. It's crazy. Yep. Um, yep. My family is right over uh, the state line here um, in Alabama, and their rut is, like you said, last week of December, first week of January. Yep. And we can go from coastal Georgia, where I am, where it's late October, over to southwest Georgia, the corner of southwest Georgia that borders, you know, where Florida, Alabama, and Georgia come together. And it's now late December and into January even. And recently, DNR, Georgia DNR, made some adjustments to the season because some hunters down there were saying, look, deer are still rutting and we have to quit hunting January 15th. And so they've extended those seasons a little bit in some of those southwest Georgia counties for that. So, right. so yeah, it's, it's all over the place because of, number one, the traditional, like I said, pattern of earlier rut timing and later in some areas or earlier due to climatic factors like flood seasons, but also now the genetic mix-up that we created with restocking. Let's talk about that piece a little bit. That, that is what I'd heard about all growing up, right? So I grew up in the deep south of Alabama. Our season always ended January 31st when I was growing up. The problem with that is the areas that we hunted, we didn't even start seeing bucks on their feet until January 15th, January 20th. Um, and it, the season was closing before we ever got to be – before we even really started to see a lot of scrapes popping up, before we started to see a lot of rubs, before we started to see a lot of chasing. Thankfully, later on, they, you know, extended that season. But what I was always told is it's, oh, it's the restocking. It's the restocking. It's the restocking. I never quite understood how that would play into a February rut. But, uh, you know, it was, it was just what I was always told. Have we seen how that restocking, has begun to, or maybe meshes or clashes with local genetics in certain areas, and have they started to find a medium in between? What what has that looked like, or are they, or are they staying very very distinct rutting periods in these places that have had you know deer reintroduced from another location? They're staying pretty steady, and they there's some there's a reason, good reason for that. And Jason Summers, who's now in Missouri. Uh, with the state agency there, did he studied this when he was at Mississippi State. 
and very good study on this uh, that really teased out. They went in and they got, collected genetics in several areas around the South from pairs of populations that were very close geographically, but very different in a rut peak. So, for example, they looked at the genetics of some Georgia deer on the Georgia state line and, and some Alabama deer right across the state line with two very different rut peaks uh, for the peak of breeding. They also went and compared other populations that were close geographically, but similar, and, and looked at all of this. And what they found was those, those populations like on the Georgia-Alabama line, where you've got very different rut peaks, but very close geographically. They found that on the buck side of genetics, they were very similar. Bucks, as we know, when they're young as yearlings, they disperse. Like 85% of, of yearling bucks are going to disperse from where they're born and go somewhere else and set up a new adult home range. Does don't work that way. They stay very close to home. That's where they saw the differences was in doe genetics, in what's called the mitochondrial DNA. And not to get too technical, but you inherit your mitochondrial DNA from your mother, not from your father. And so what they saw was very different genetic populations like that close geographically on the doe side. And that what that indicates is that the trigger for the timing of estrus is inherited from doe to doe to doe on the mother's side. Um, and so because those don't spread out, those, uh, those new trigger timings that had been reset through restocking can kind of settle in and stay where they are geographically for the most part and don't really spread or move across the landscape much, if that makes sense. Right. Now, the confusing part was, okay, so, you know, when we, when we look at restocking, most people think a lot of people are under the misunderstanding that restocking meant a bunch of Wisconsin and Michigan deer being brought down here and released. There were some that were brought down here and released. But for the most part, what the restocking records show is the vast majority of deer in the South that were restocked were moved inside the, the state or from a neighboring state. For example, Texas supplied a lot of deer to Louisiana and Mississippi. Um, Georgia, most of its deer were moved from within Georgia, from places like the coastal islands and Piedmont Refuge and other places where there were holdout populations. Uh, Alabama, Mississippi, these were the same. Many of the deer were moved from holdout populations within that state to other areas, but there were deer from Mexico even in Texas uh, and Wisconsin, but those northern deer were very small numbers. And what they found now is, for the most part, those northern genetics didn't last. They've been extinguished. Most of the genetics we have today match source populations within the state or other nearby states. But the thing is we have to remember is that um, it's day length that triggers the rut. Day length changes with latitude. You know, right now, <clears throat> the length of our day here in Georgia is going to be different than the length of our, than a day in, for somebody in Pennsylvania today. It's going to be shorter in Pennsylvania. Um, when you take a deer and move it around from a latitude standpoint, you know, they're bringing with them a genetic cue to go into estrus on a certain day length, but that day length is going to be now on a different day in the calendar because you've changed that deer's latitude. Right. So it, it's not necessarily that, okay, well, why do we have deer in, you know, South Alabama that rut in January and February when we don't really see a source population that has the same rut timing, it's not like you're, those deer are picking up a calendar date and bringing it with them. They're bringing a day length cue. And that day length cue is now because they moved latitudes on a different day in the calendar. So right. that's how this kind of got messed up like it is, but also because it's past doe to doe and does tend not to disperse across the landscape like bucks do these, these new trigger dates have remained static in geographically uh, where they are and have not changed across time. Right. And we should expect them to continue to be relatively stable. Uh, in my lifetime and your lifetime. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. Now hundreds of years, who knows that'll, that'll be, that'll be something interesting to see. I have a feeling that, that uh, it'll probably smooth out. Um, so, but the thing to remember is that in the South without a climate control, without a winter that weeds out deer born of a certain time, you know, these will last, you know, the deer, uh, these, these uh, southern populations that breed extremely late in January and February, they're, you know, you got spotted fawns walking around in October. Yep. And um, those fawns are going to be just fine. They're not going to be killed by winter because we don't have extreme winters like that. And our growing season is so long 
that there's forage out there for most of the year. So um, not always high quality. We still have the highest quality forage in spring and summer, but there's still green forage a longer time of the year than compared to the north. So again, that that control, that lethal control for any deer that doesn't breed during a certain period of time is not there in the south. Right, right. And so that plays into another topic that I like, I'd like you to speak to if you can. Uh, every year I enjoy heading to the Midwest to hunt the rut. I love the, I love the intensity that I find there. That seems to be unlike anything that I've found for the most part in the South. I mean, you'll have those magical days in the South where it's like, wow, that was a lot of rutting activity. You, you happen to be in the neighborhood of a hot doe. But for the most part, what I've, what I've seen hunting the rut in the South is like, oh, I just have a higher chance of seeing a buck on his feet, you know, during the day. I right. don't see the aggressive behavior. I don't see the constant cruising throughout the day like I do in the Midwest. I don't hear the vocalizations like I do in the Midwest. Um, it's it's just very, very different. Can you speak to that intensity level and maybe even how you might hunt a little bit differently with that broader window that we have here in the South? Yeah, there's two, two factors really there, and you said one of them there with broader window. But the first one is going to be your buck-to-doe ratio. Um, just because, you know, you hunt in the south and you don't see rut intensity doesn't mean it's something about hunting in the south versus hunting in the Midwest. It could be your buck-to-doe ratio. Um, natural deer populations, fawns are born at a 50-50 buck-doe ratio, roughly 50-50. So over time, even though bucks, as they get older, have a slightly higher mortality rate naturally than does, over time your population is going to be fairly balanced, one-to-one or two-to-one, does per buck. But because traditionally hunters tend to pressure bucks and not shoot does, particularly it's not so much now like it used to be, but uh, still in many areas, hunters don't take the numbers of does they need to. They're hunting bucks and they get their buck and they go home. And when pressure is uh, hunting pressure is higher on bucks than on does, you can get uh, buck to doe ratios, doe to buck rather, that are, you know, three, four, and even five or or sometimes more out there in terms of deer on the landscape. And when that happens, when you've got that many does per buck out there, bucks don't have to work as hard to find an estrus doe. Uh, That's what the rut, the whitetail rut is all about. It is a scramble over a short period of time for deer to successfully breed, for bucks to find does, for does to find bucks and get the job done in a short period of time. When a buck you know, that it's not as much of a scramble for a buck when the average, he's got an average of five to six does out there for every buck that he's competing against. He can tend to an estrus doe, and then there's going to be another one very close by uh, as soon as he's done with that one. And that means they're less visible. They don't move as much. We've shown the data shows they don't scrape and rub as much. Uh, they don't vocalize as much. They don't fight as much. They don't respond to grunting and rattling as much in that situation. So the first thing you can do when you don't think you see much rut activity, and if you're not seeing rubs and scrapes in the woods, is take pressure off bucks and start taking some does. Get some more buck, adult bucks in the population. That will help. Raise the rut competition level to where it should be naturally. You know, that's the rut competition. That's that's the natural setting for whitetails, and that's where we want it to be. So taking some does if you need to and passing some young bucks can intensify the rut where you hunt. But the other thing, too, is what you said about the broad window. When you, like we talked about, in the north, deer have a very short window to get this done for fawns to survive because of that greater uh, winter intensity that weeds out deer born too early or too late. And so there is a much narrow window of time during which does come into estrus, and it is more intense during that period of time. Uh, all the does are coming into estrus during a much shorter window. The bucks are scrambling to be the one to be with them. You got to be fast. You got to hurry. You got to rub. You got to scrape. You got to challenge other bucks. Uh, and you got to cover a lot of ground. And that's why, in most cases in the Midwest, you're seeing that. For example, here in the South at Grace Acres, deer breed over a much wider window, again, simply because they can. And we see dates, you know, when we have late season doe harvest, often we will find small fetuses in the does that we harvest. As, and you can measure those with a special scale that tells you exactly when that fetus was conceived. We find conception dates as early as early September 
Wow. Uh, and then just as late, you know, into late November and December, it's a much, you know, if you look at the peak of breeding as a bell curve distribution on a chart, the bell curve in the South is much wider, again, simply because it can be, because the fawns born to does that come into estrus early or late aren't going to die. And in the North, they will. So, yeah, it's a, it spreads out over a wider window. You can see some rut activity earlier, and the peak is lower. That peak of the bell curve in the middle is going to be lower because fewer does are coming into estrus out of the doe population during that period of time. And that's why you tend to see less rut intensity in the South than you do in the North and the Midwest. But again, you can change that. And we did that at Grace Acres. When we, you know, 20 years ago plus, when we first started taking the number of does we needed to take and passing more young bucks and getting them into older gauge classes, suddenly grunting and rattling worked where it had not before. We were seeing fights and we were hearing vocalizations. Uh, seeing more scrapes and rubs in the woods, you know, having those days during the peak of breeding when you see a lot of bucks moving in daylight. Um, so you can adjust that in the South by, by taking the adequate number of does and protecting young bucks to adjust that buck to doe ratio. Right, right. I want to I wanna give you two sort of objections that, that people have leveled towards this. And one was actually in the form of an article that I read um, that kind of made me scratch my head and say, you're missing the point. But anyway, the author essentially argued that even in the worst buck to doe ratio out there, it can never be more than three to one because the does that are left over that year, they're going to produce fawns and those fawns will drop at a rate of 50, 50. Therefore, by the following spring, you're left with three to one buck to doe. Can you respond to that? And that's that's actually accurate. Now it can get worse than three to one, um, right? You know, it, you know, it could re- in reality be five, maybe six to one, but often hunters will report ratios like fifteen to one. I went hunting and I saw twenty does and one buck, and they'll say, you know, it's way that is unlikely. Again, because of what. Uh, you're talking about there that every spring a new crop of fawns comes in and that's a correction. They're born 50, 50. So that's a, an annual correction to the population and the doe to bug ratio. It doesn't fix it in one year, but over time, those waves of fawns coming in and older deer dying and moving out, you know, does tend to act as a correcting factor to the buck to doe ratio. And it's very difficult to get it in reality to a 15 to 20 or 20 to one. What's going on there is, observation rates by hunters, you know, are affected by other factors than simply, you know, the buck to doe ratio of what's in the woods. And so just because you sat there and counted 15 does this morning and only one buck does not mean that's the reality of the ratio on the ground. As you know, bucks tend to move more during that peak of breeding. They are less visible uh, at other times of the season when there aren't as many does in estrus. So that can be a variable. Uh, older bucks also respond to pressure in a more sensitive way in areas that you're hunting too hard and they only show up there at night in areas that you're hunting too hard. So there's other factors that go into what you witness from a buck to doe ratio standpoint. And because you saw 20 does in one buck doesn't mean that's what the ratio is, but it can get, it can get, you know, as bad as five, six in that area. Um, but in most cases, if, if, and the truth is, people say, well, if you got to have a balanced one-to-one, no, you don't, you know, and, and it's it's even tough to get to two-to-one. But if but if you can get around two-to-one, you're doing pretty good. Right, right. And there's a there's a big difference in a herd, you know, back thinking about this article that I read, there's a big difference in a herd with a, with a three-to-one ratio of buck fawns to adult does than there is with a three-to-one ratio with a healthy age class or healthy age structure in the buck population and does on the ground. You know what I mean? Like if you're, yes. if, if you're primarily dealing with buck fawns and all your bucks running around are one year old, you're probably going to have a little bit different look at the rut. Yes. And, got and a healthier structure. With, buck, with ratios, we are talking about adults. We're right. talking about one and exactly. a half and older deer. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So yep. the adult buck to doe ratio. Right. Right. Uh, the other, the other objection that I've heard is this, and I, and I've gotten this one a lot when, uh, when, talking with landowners about improving their property, uh, especially on smaller properties. I don't want to harvest my does because they're what brings the bucks. Mm. 
Yeah, the, the buck magnet theory. Right. right. Very familiar with this. Right. So can you speak to that? Yeah. So a couple problems with that. Um, uh, several problems with it, really. But um, number one, let's look at, at how bucks operate with their home range. You know, they, they disperse as yearlings generally. They don't always, but about 85% of yearling bucks are going to leave where they were born and go somewhere else, you know, average of about five to six miles and set up a new adult home range. And generally, they're going to die in that adult home range. Um, certainly they make excursions and adult, their home range may have sections. It may have a rut section and a winter section and they spend it, you know, two different parts of the year. Um, they will sometimes leave on short vacations of a day or two outside that home range and go explore some area and come back. But that home range where they spend 95% of their time throughout the year, that's, they don't change that home range. Um, and that's, that's a very logical and sensible survival mechanism. You know, if bucks were just migratory and moved across the landscape constantly in new areas where they don't know where the food is and they don't know where the water is and they don't know where the danger zones are for predators, you know, that's high risk. So it makes sense that bucks have a home range that they are loyal to. Uh, There have even been studies where deer were wearing collars in flood zones and the Mississippi River flooded completely bucks home range and pushed them out of it by miles some of them even stayed there and drowned and died, but those that left and went miles away to get away from floodwaters, when the flood went away, went right back toward to their adult home ranges. Wow. So the point is they're loyal to those adult home ranges for very good survival reasons. And the point I'm trying to make here is bucks don't have a radar that three valleys over, there's more does and more breeding opportunities, so I'm going to move over there. Right. Within their adult home range, though, they do roam and hunt for estrus does in that area. That's how that works. The point is bucks don't really, they don't move around the landscape in big, large movements looking for higher concentrations of does. That's, that's not how this works. But then secondly, going back to what I said earlier, when you have an area and, you know, the average bucks home range in the South can be anywhere from 300, 500, 600 acres. It kind of varies. Uh, in more open landscapes, it'll be bigger. But when you when you talk about an area that's you know as big or slightly bigger than the average buck's home range, if the buck to doe ratio out there is skewed toward does, going back to what I said, bucks don't have to work as hard for breeding opportunities. They're going to tend a doe for the 24 hours that she's in estrus, and when she's done and no longer receptive, they're moving on and trying to find the next one. And again, when there's lots of does, he doesn't have to move far to the next one. And so, you know, call that a lockdown, if you will, when bucks are are with that doe for 24 hours, it's like almost perpetual lockdown during the peak of breeding. He's going to just stay with estradzos and does not have to go far to find the next one. And and that affects the visibility of that buck to you. Uh, He's not roaming. He's not scraping. He's not rubbing. He's not vocalizing. He's not fighting. He's not covering lots of area because he's just staying with estrus does. When a deer population is balanced like it should be, roughly balanced but uh, doe to buck, that's when you see the rut competition. That's when bucks move more. That's when you can rattle him in because bucks will respond to rattling. That might be a breeding opportunity. They're having to compete against other bucks during that short scramble to be the one that breeds a doe. And so the whole thing about stockpiling does to attract bucks in. It just doesn't work that way. Even if it attracted a buck who's on an excursion from a nearby home range into that area, um, you know, again, once he's there, he's not going to stay. He's going to go back home to his home range eventually. But even while he's there, it's too easy for him to find an estrus doe. So this whole, you know, buck magnet theory just doesn't work. But then finally, too, stockpiling does when you're in a situation where you may not have enough food for all these deer and the deer density is too high and the habitat's being impacted and all the forage is eaten, that's irresponsible. You need to be managing your deer density so that you've got adequate nutrition for the deer that live there, both the bucks and the does. And that's why, you know, we encourage doe harvest to increase deer health across the board for all deer, bigger deer, healthier fawns, bigger body weights, more fat, and yes, bigger antlers. So doe harvest is an important key there. To deny doe harvest and say, I'm not going to shoot any does because I want to draw bucks in, it's just, it doesn't work that way, and it's, it's just a problematic all the way around. Right. So let's, I think this is probably as good of a time as any to say, okay, there have been troubling trends, right, among the harvest data that shows we are taking fewer does 
than we really need to across the board. Can you speak to that a little bit? What have you guys noticed in the studies that you've done and what you would like to see from hunters? And then, you know, okay, if somebody says, yeah, I'll take some does, when's the right time of year? I get that question a lot. And my usual answer is whenever a doe steps out in front of you. But what would what would you say? So, first of all, yeah, every, all of us have the responsibility as deer managers to ask the question whether locally we need to be taking does. And once the answer is yes, then you determine how many you need to take. And there's you know lots of information that goes into making that decision. But all of us need to ask that question. What we are seeing in the data for deer harvest is that doe harvest is declining in a lot of states. Um Something like out of 37 primary whitetail states uh, last year, we saw 30 of those or 31, 32 of those doe harvest was declining rapidly faster than buck harvest was. Wow. And and we're taking in most of those states fewer uh, does than bucks. And in most places, for most of us, we need to take as many does as we take bucks across time. You harvest a buck this year, you ought to take at least one doe. That's just a basic rule that all of us ought to take. And in many areas, most of us should take more than one doe per buck. So anytime a state is taking fewer does than bucks, it's it's a situation where you need to, to you know take some caution and look at that. Now, it's not that there are fewer deer. Deer populations are healthy. We're killing more bucks and more deer overall than we have at any time in modern history, 6 million deer a year. Um, what's going on is we're seeing not only decline in hunter numbers, which we've been seeing, we know we've seen that problem. Everybody's aware of that for a number of years, but the average hunter is taking fewer deer, um, out there. You know, I think most of us, for many of us, you take a deer, you put your deer in the freezer for many people, that'll get them through the year. They don't need a whole bunch of deer in the freezer. Um, so one, maybe two deer, Uh, many deer hunters don't take any deer every year. And so, you know, that's where the problem comes in. Most of us need to be taking more deer than most of us can eat. And so donation programs are needed, things like that, that to help get this done. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a cause for alarm that we're starting to see trends in, in not taking enough does because hunters are the primary tool for state wildlife agencies to get that done. And if there aren't enough hunters and hunters aren't taking enough deer, we're in trouble. Right. Absolutely. Now to your second question about when to take them. So, you know, there's a lot of factors you can look at when you're skinning a deer. Is it got a lot of fat on it? Do you see a lot of internal body cavity fat? Are the kidneys covered in good, good amounts of fat? Those are very good indicators uh, during deer season for you of whether you've got enough food out there on the landscape for all your deer. If you're killing does in the fall and they don't have any fat on them, um, that's cause for concern. Now a buck post rut might not have much fat on him because he's been hard at work during the rut trying to be breed does, and that's typical. But for does, if you're not seeing body fat on those animals, that's a sign of concern. Looking at the habitat, are you seeing primary forages eaten to the dirt? If you put a browse cage on your food plots, is the cage full of forage and everything around it is dirt? That's a bad sign. That's a sign you don't have enough food for the number of deer that are out there. And so those are indicators you use to determine whether you need to take some does or not. And if you do, you know, begin taking a few. And until you start to see the fat come back, until you start to see high quality forage out there that's not over browse, those are the things you want to look for. But when you determine that you need to take them, like you said, take them anytime that she's standing there broadside and giving you a shot. Uh, We recommend not putting it off till after the rut because there's a lot of reasons why it can be tougher to get your doe harvest goal after the rut is over. Right. You end up uh, shooting a lot of nubbin bucks <laughs> after the rut on accident. Uh, those deer are looking a little bit bigger. You have more skittish deer, which I know for us can be tough. You know, um, we were our personal family property is there is no hunting after the rut. February 10th, you know, season shuts down and we're still, we're still essentially hunting the rut. And so if we don't do it early, then we're probably not going to get any does taken. Um, but, but I have heard the concern, and I understand it. Uh, people don't want to accidentally take a doe that is pregnant. Uh, they don't want to accidentally take a doe that has a fawn, you know, a, a, that has a fetus. So I get that, but they're like, you know, then you're taking two deer off the landscape. It's like, well, same, t- same math. Like, if you would have shot it earlier in the season, it wouldn't have been around to be pregnant, and so you still you still wouldn't have that fawn 
dropping in the spring anyway. So it, it really works out equally. Right. Whether you kill the doe early or kill her later after she's been bred, it doesn't matter. She's not going to have fawns next spring. Right. So, right. Uh, yeah, I, I've never really understood that one either. It doesn't really, it doesn't make a difference. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the thing to remember is when you, when you look at that, oh, well, that's two deer I'm taking, that's three deer I'm taking off the landscape. You know, the, the thing to remember is fewer, healthier does produce more fawns that survive than a higher number of does that are not getting adequate forage. So what happens is when you've got too many does out there, too many deer out there, and there's not enough adequate food for all of them to go around, the quality of her milk is lower, the quality of the cover to hide that fawn from predators is lower. A uh, lot of factor, the quality, the, the health of the fawn is going to be lower. And so those does actually produce fewer fawns that survive than fewer does that are in healthy condition. When you've got fewer does and they've all got adequate nutrition, they're going to kick out twins and even triplets at a higher rate. And more of those fawns are going to survive to make it to fall. And so that's why, you know, and that's counterintuitive. People would think, well, you know, 50 does ought to produce more fawns than, than 20 does, right? Not necessarily. If those 50 does are unhealthy because there's not enough food to go around, no, they're going to produce fewer fawns than the 20 does that are all kicking out twins and triplets and those are all surviving. So again, going back to the math, that's where, you know, you don't need to worry about whether a doe has been bred or not. If you've got an opportunity to take a doe now and you need to take some does, take the does. Right. And does it matter uh, if you're taking an older doe or a younger doe? Like, let's say you've got a couple does out in the food plot. Do you want to try to take that older age class doe? Or do you want to take the middle-aged looking doe that maybe doesn't have fawns around? Like, does it really matter when you select it does. the harvest? It does. And, and the question for you is whether you're in a situation that's severe with major habitat damage and way too many deer, and you really need to, to, to reduce density, or whether you're in a situation where you're, you know, about close to balance, you've got good forage and your food plots aren't chewed to the dirt, and, you know, you're, you're fairly close, you think, to being uh, where you want to be, but you want to take a doe for the freezer, that affects, yes, which doe you take. So let's say you're, you're you know, fairly close to being balanced with the habitat. You need to take a doe or two, but not a whole bunch. That's where you would want to err toward a younger doe because we know that among older does, they have higher fawn survival rates and fawn production rates in general. And so the impact on the population production is less if you take a younger doe. And then, so it would be vice versa. If you're in a more severe situation and really need to reduce deer density, you would opt for the older doe in a group. If you're looking at a group, you want to look for that biggest, longest neck, longest nosed, most alert doe. Take her if you really need to reduce deer density because she's more likely to produce more fawns that survive. And then there's another thing to consider here. Uh, some new research out of Auburn University has shown that apparently not every doe is an equal producer of fawns. There are some does that are just better mothers, better genetically, whatever it might be, that produce more twins and triplets that survive than other does do. Um, and so if, you, um, if you're looking at a, an old doe standing there and she's got two fawns of the year with her, um, that's definitely, you know, most likely going to be a doe that has higher reproductive output than a doe that you saw that's an adult, a grown doe with a long neck and a long nose that didn't have any you know, fawns with her that appeared to be hers. So, you know, again, there's another choice that you could make taking a doe that, that didn't appear to produce fawns this year for less impact on population density, but still some impact or versus a doe that clearly has, you know, fawns with her that she produced this year. Now, the thing to remember is um, people sometimes get squeamish about taking a doe that's got what appears to be her fawns for this year. Right. There's no impact on their survival. They're right. going to be just fine. Fawns begin to wean in summer. They begin to wean off the milk onto forage long before deer seasons get here. And so by the time their spots are gone, those fawns are completely independent and can survive without their doe. You will sometimes see fawns attempt to nurse, even when they're so big they can barely get their head up under the doe. And you'll also notice the doe generally seems irritated by it. You know, she often won't let them do that. Uh, that's just a, uh, that's a behavioral thing. That is not because they still require milk or still require to nurse. 
Um, so button bucks and, and doe fawns that are with a doe later on in the season, they are completely capable of surviving just fine um, if the doe is removed, you know, through harvest. Right, right. And I'll, I'll just tell everybody what my typical strategy is, often is, is the, the doe that won't stop looking at my blind. She's the one. She's, <laughs> yeah. she, she's the one that's going. She's she's getting harvested because I'm tired and, of her looking at me. Right. And hey, if you got a doe out there that's got a, a doe fawn and a button buck fawn with her, and you can drop that mature doe right there, and the doe fawn sticks around long enough and gives you a shot, take her too. Right. Um, you right. know, when you've got when when deer density is high and you need to get this done, take does. Right. Right. Yeah. Take get the population down. Do what you have to do. Because in the long run, you're going to be much better served. So yes. uh, one more topic that I, I, I think is important maybe to bring up doesn't really have to do much with the rut. But you mentioned, you know, the responsibility of hunters when it comes to managing our deer, man, you know, and, and what we harvest. I think CWD is one of those things where we as hunters have a responsibility for uh, doing the right kinds of things when it comes to how we're managing our deer. What would you say to folks? What, what do you want the public to know when it comes to a concern like CWD here in the South? Because I, I don't see the hot spot areas here yet, right, that are, you know, oh, no, what are we going to do? But I lived for three years in Wisconsin, hunting in southern and southwestern Wisconsin, right? And I've seen the concern, and I've seen the impact of CWD, and I've, I've hunted a county that comes back almost 50% positive for every buck that's killed. It's not good. And the hunting there is about to be drastically different than it has been for this area. And it's been fantastic. I've called it Little Iowa because it really is very good hunting in this area. And I have a feeling in the next 10 years, it's probably not going to be nearly that quality. And I don't want to see southern states go down the same route, especially as we're starting to see, you know, here in the south, we're churning out some of the oldest deer. You know, our harvest uh, ages among our bucks has been really, really good over the last couple of years. I would hate to see that derailed so what do you guys want people to know when it comes to cwd and what we as hunters can and should be doing to keep that risk low yeah i'd want them to know that there is a fight against cwd that we can slow the spread of it that we can manage it where it has popped up and we can slow the the spread of it to new areas but we have to engage as hunters in the fight this is not something you can sit back and ignore and not play a role in you have a role in this fight as a deer hunter an important role and, it, you know, not you don't even have to have CWD in your area to play an important role as a deer hunter in protecting the deer resource that we all love so much. Right. And it comes down to simple things. Are you going to hunt in another state this year? Are you going to travel? Are you going to travel out of your county to another part of the state? Do you know if where you're going is a place where CWD is known to exist? Um, there, it starts right there. Just knowing that you're going to be hunting in an area that has CWD helps you take steps that can help in the fight. For example, not leaving that area with a deer carcass and taking it back home with you where you might potentially help spread CWD out of a zone to a new area or back where you hunt or back to your home state. Um, also getting that deer tested when you hunt in a CWD zone, you know, submit it for the free testing because not only does that help the agency know where the disease exists and what prevalence it's at and help them manage it, but it helps you know and, and reduce your risk when you when it comes time to consuming that venison. You want to make sure that that deer test, uh, you know, that CWD was not found before you consume that. Our risk of consume of of a um, getting CWD from a deer is extremely low. It appears it's not possible right now, but but we can't say with 100% certainty that it's impossible. And therefore, the experts recommend that you reduce your risk even further by testing deer that come from CWD zones. Uh, before you consume them. Um, so participating in even in areas in the South, you know, we're starting to get it now. North Florida has now found it. Alabama has it in, in Northwest Alabama. Mississippi's got it in several areas, Tennessee, now Kentucky. Um, you know, we're starting to get it in these spots. But if you're in an area that doesn't have it and you have an opportunity to submit a deer for sampling to test just to help monitor, these things help. So, Getting your deer tested, not carrying carcasses across the landscape, crossing state lines with deer carcasses, um, you know, reporting sick deer. If you're in an area with no CWD, you got no nothing to worry about as far as you know, and you walk up on a deer that's just standing there walking in circles and isn't afraid of you, call the state wildlife agency and report that deer. Don't just video it and put it on social media and go look at this. 
call the agency and let them know about that deer. They may not be able to come out and, and check it out immediately, but in many cases they will and they'll want to sample that deer. When we, you know, if you can find CWD when it first arrives very early in a new area, that's extremely important to keeping prevalence rates low. So if you cover that up and you don't call the agency because you don't want to know whether it's CWD or not, you're potentially making it worse on you and the deer in that area by not reporting that sick deer. It's, it's much better if we find it earlier because then we can manage it and keep prevalence rates lower. Right. So yes, we have, we all have a role to play in this. There's many more things we can do, but mostly just educating yourself about where you hunt, whether you hunt in a CWD zone or not, or whether you're going to be traveling out of state to hunt in a CWD zone and knowing the regulations that are intended to help stop the spread of the disease to new areas. Is it safe to say that CWD is, you know, one of, if not the greatest threat facing whitetails in the next 15 to 20 years? Absolutely. I think right now it definitely is currently the biggest threat. Certainly there's others, you know, we're losing habitat to development. Hunter numbers are declining. Um, We've got other issues, but right now CWD is the the most imminent for the future. Um, You know, as you pointed out in in Wisconsin, and that's a great example, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. you know, early on, Wisconsin founded in 2001. That was the first case east of the Mississippi River that we knew about. Uh, The DNR attempted to try to do some management techniques that would have kept prevalence rates low. But early on, politics got involved, um, you know, and it was a a bad situation there where suddenly the tools were taken away from DNR and they were told not to manage the disease, simply to monitor it and see what happens. And what happened now, like you said, we're seeing 50 and 60 percent disease rates among bucks in those southwestern areas, and uh, it's, it's getting worse. And what will happen eventually is, you know, people say uh, CWD and wiping out the deer. Yeah, that's not the way it works. It's a very slow poison. And what happens is eventually it reaches a point where the mortality rate from CWD is high enough added to other sources of mortality, like car collisions, like injuries, and of course, like the biggest one, which is hunter harvest, that in totality, the deer population can't sustain that much mortality without something being reduced. And the only thing we know to reduce is hunter harvest to maintain those deer numbers. The only thing we can control really effectively is to reduce hunter harvest. So we reach a point at some point in Wisconsin, we'll get there eventually where hunter harvest has to be reduced or else we start seeing deer numbers decline. Right. So that's the fear. And again, we have tools that we can manage these Missouri, Illinois, many other states have been managing the disease for years and keeping prevalence rates in the single digits. And as long as you can keep prevalence in a CWD zone in the single digits, you can continue to have hunter harvest. There's enough, plenty enough healthy deer out there for us to continue to have hunting and hunter harvest every fall and live with CWD. But you've got to find it early and you've got to maintain manage management and hunters play a role in that. If we turn away from it, if we close our eyes and say, I don't think this is a problem, I'm not going to, I don't want to know about it, then it only gets worse. We have to be engaged. Absolutely. And I I just want to say for folks who may be, again, with Wisconsin, politics got involved. It turned into a whole debacle there and still is, you know, having lived in the state for a couple of years, it's still a a whole political thing, but there's no denying the fact Illinois found it not way, not much longer, long after, not long after Wisconsin. Right Right about the same time. And the track it took to handle CWD was very, very different. And they are now in a very different situation. So what they did in Illinois worked. Whatever, whatever you want to say about it, whatever gripe you want to have about how Wisconsin handled it, Illinois did it and it worked. Wisconsin didn't do it. And they are where they are right now. So, that's right. um, man, I think that's a great place to land the plane. I really appreciate your time coming on today. Uh, Lindsay, if folks want to keep up with you, find more from the NDA, where can they go? Go to DeerAssociation.com. That's our website. And on social, we're at Deer Association on all the channels. So check us out on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, even YouTube as well. And uh, DeerAssociation.com is the website. Josh, we put out a free newsletter every Thursday morning by email with lots of deer content. Go to our website, sign up for that free email, and start learning about who we are and become a member today, if you will. Absolutely, absolutely. Lindsay, thank you for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Folks, you've probably got some time left for the rut if you're here in the South. If you drive an hour or two in any given direction, I bet you can find some deer that are still feeling it. So 
uh, get out there and get in the woods. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, please go subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you can leave us a review, I would really appreciate that. Until next week, let's keep doing things the Southern way.